And that was the point. Once I realized, like, okay, I'm doing the same thing. I have no hope of tomorrow being any different. I'm literally invisible. People can't even see me. That sent me into a really, really deep, dark, scary place that led to me attempting to, to kill myself. I, I'm not a very good swimmer. And so I figured, what's the easiest way out of this thing? And I was like, well, I'll just swim out as far as I can you know, out into the ocean, I won't be able to swim back. And so I waited until the beach is kind of cleared in the evening one night, and I, uh, I swam out as, as basically as far as I could, and, you know, the waves are smashing up against my face, all, the, all of those different things. And as I reached the point where I thought, okay, this is my last breath, this, this is it, it's all over. As I reached that point, my head went under, Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's interview that I just finished, uh, I was actually quite surprised by the intriguing nature of the story that Glenn Lundy had for us. So he's an expert in sales, and also he has a very large following in his Rise and Shine group where he really helps people to you know, kind of start the morning in a rise. It's called Rise and Grind, actually. And it's actually, he's got his own planner and training company. But what I didn't anticipate is that Glenn goes into the story where for a while he was homeless and then wanted to commit suicide and was just down and out completely. So he shares his story from these roots, uh, from being a high performer to nothing, back to being a high performer and then teaching other people how to do it. And I was just fascinated. My number one frustration with this show is that we ran at a time. We went a little longer than we normally do, uh, but I'm sure you will not be disappointed. Now, with that, uh, as you, uh, many of you uh, know or might not know, is that the show is sponsored by Consulting Resource Group, which is our publishing and training division. We really help where we help others to realize their full potential. And one of the things that Glenn and I talk about during the show is that every single person matters. Every single person has a purpose. Every single person has a contribution to make. And that's one of the things that we do as well as just about any other company in the planet at CRG is to help you to get clearer, not only about uh, self-awareness, but self-mastery. That once I know who I am, I can contribute at the highest level. And so my encouragement as you consider, if you haven't already done so, is that we have you know a couple of online courses and the one I'm focusing on today is our values course. What do you really value? You know, when you know what you value, then you can make the right decision every time. Yes, it's a play in words, but you know if I can have those core values, those core values can be a filter to the decisions I make in terms of the career, relationships, all the things in your life are linked to that. And what a release that is. It is our second most popular tool after the personal style indicator. And so there are some links in the show notes for you to consider that. As always, we thank you for being a Secrets of Success listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it, subscribe, leave a positive comment or rating on whatever platform you're listening on. So thank you again for listening. Now here is our interview with Glenn Lundy. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. So our expert today is really around the master of engagement. He also is host of the show, Rise and Grind. Well, we'll have to figure out what the heck that stands for uh, when we get into it. But welcome to the show, Glenn Lundy. Glenn, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ken. It's an honor to, to be here. I appreciate you. So you're on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, so you've already had your lunch, you're ready kind of to go when we're recording this. So Glenn, what we like to do is, you know, before we dive into your expertise, is a little bit of your history growing up. So uh, where was sort of home for you when the start of your life? So I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona, of all places, but the uh, the Grand Canyon was in my 
backyard there, uh, fairly small, not super small, but fairly small city, uh, about 150 miles north of Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, yeah, so I grew up in a pretty cool place. It's a unique place in the sense that most people think Arizona, they think desert, they think hot, but Flagstaff actually sits at 7,500 feet elevation. So we had... Yeah, so we had all four seasons. There's a ski resort there called Snowball Ski Resort, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was it was a fun place to grow up for sure. I don't think very many listeners know that Arizona has a ski resort. I know, like, isn't that crazy? I, I'm from you know I'm I've been up at Whistler, which is just two hours north of me here in Vancouver, where the Olympics were held. Uh, probably the mountain and the snow is a little different than that. It gets rowdy, man. I remember a, a time when I was a kid, we got like eight feet of snow overnight. I mean, right, right there in the in the city. So it's, it's 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 a it's an interesting place. Arizona is one of the only places they have six. There's like seven different climates, right? Like tropical and desert and so on and so forth. And Arizona actually has six of the seven all in that one state. Wow, who knew that? Well, Glenn did. We didn't. And I've been Only people Phoenix that live there. The conferences in Phoenix and enjoy Arizona. A lot, of, a lot of Canadians, of course, head down for uh, snowbirds just to enjoy the winter down there. So uh, what was your sort of your family? What did your parents do? So my mom worked at a place called Gore. So she helped with medical billing. And my dad was a forklift driver at a Walgreens warehouse. And that was that was what they did uh, most of their life. My mom was laid off from that particular company at one point and uh, and kind of had to transition into doing medical billing for private doctor's offices and whatnot. But uh, that was their that was their fields. My dad was a forklift driver and my mom was a medical billing assistant. Mm. So what was life like uh, in your household as a teenager? Oh, wow, man. So I have a, a really interesting upbringing. So I am, as far as my ethnicity, I'm half black, I'm half white. So my dad is black, my mom is white. And I grew up, uh, they got divorced when I was about 11. And when they got divorced, the most interesting thing happened, Ken. My dad, who's African American, he remarried an African American woman. My mom, Caucasian, she remarried a white guy. And then they moved into an apartment complex, Greenlaw Garden Apartments, and we lived two doors apart. So my dad and his new wife were in apartment 30, and my mom and her new husband were in apartment 28. What? <laughs> it was crazy, kid. And I got to tell you, every stereotype that you could imagine existed in these two homes, right? Like dad's house was hip-hop music, Motown, collard greens, Kool-Aid, fried chicken, all the stereotypes, <laughs> lots of sports, TVs, loud, rambunctious. Uh, she had some. She had four kids of her own, too. So there was a bunch of us in that house. And then my mom's house was... Uh, you know, country music, rock and roll, much more, much more quiet. Uh, good old Southern, you know, home food, home, uh, soul, not soul food, but home cooking. I've never heard that before where X is going to move in across the way from each other. Now, was that intentional to manage the kids or how did that come about? So what it was is uh, cost effectiveness. So they had a mutual friend who owned or she was the manager of the apartment complex. So when they first got divorced, she offered my mom an apartment so my mom would have a place to go. And my dad kind of stayed somewhere else for about eight months. And then, uh, you know, time went on and my dad needed a good cost-effective place for him to stay with his new bride. And so he reached out to this same friend and ended up moving two doors down from his ex-wife. <laughs> uh, obviously, they uh, tolerated it. It worked out okay. They both found new partners. So was it amicable or was was there tension there? I wouldn't go as far as amicable. It was cordial would be the word that I would use. So if they saw each other... In passing, they were cordial. They were kind to one another, but they definitely weren't friendly. Um, and my mom, it was interesting because my dad, you know, he remarried. This woman had already had four kids. They had two more together. So this was a three-bedroom apartment complex, and me, my sister, and six other kids would be in that, in that apartment. 
over at my mom's house, it was just me and my sister. So just the two of us, we had our own bedrooms and so on and so forth. But my mom would insist on my dad's weekends because he had every other weekend as part of the custody agreement. My mom would insist that we pack up our stuff and head two doors over. We'd have to sleep on the floors or wherever we could find space no for those for that weekend. My, my mom would not let us come back over to the house. She's like, you kids... It's your dad's weekend. Get the heck out of here for two days. Wow. Well, now when think about it, you know, before we get into some of your expertise of around engagement and, you know, the getting up in the morning and all these kinds of things, what was sort of the impact of that divorce, do you think, for you emotionally as a, uh, when you were 11? I think it was... So it it really was an interesting situation because my dad was very strict. He was military, uh, played basketball for the army for 13 years, and was so he was just very, very strict. And when my parents were together, it was a very tumultuous relationship. That's why my my wife ultimate or my wife my mom ultimately ended up leaving because my dad was, uh, you know, he was just. Just, just imagine a uh, a military, very strict um, father back in back in the day, and so there was violence and and a lot of anger and animosity and so on and so forth. So, when they split, my mom, who had never had a driver's license, who was never allowed to have any friends that weren't their friends, who was mm-hmm. never allowed to have a job while they were together. My mom now went into this world where she had to do all of those things. She had to get a license, she had to get a job, she had to figure figure things out. So while she was doing that, my sister and I were kind of off in this whole new world where there were some freedoms that we never had before that we could explore. And so I ended up getting, you know, in a whole lot of trouble. You know, I ultimately ended up just walking kind of all over my mom because she was trying to figure things out. Plus, she was trying to protect us. Um, and Mm -hmm. so she was sweet and she was kind and she felt bad about the situations we'd been in prior. And so I just ended up taking really advantage of that and getting in a lot of trouble as a, uh, as, as, as a kid. (laughs) Okay. So now we'll think about that. And it's interesting, um, you know, Glenn, as we talk about it, because one of our previous guests had mixed parents as well. And, And when we were chatting with her was just, the dynamics of growing up and, you know, racism and these kinds of things. What was that like for you growing up as a kid and and a teenager and and having these sort of dynamics going on? Well, it was very difficult in the sense that like with my friends, I was not dark enough skinned to be black, but I was too dark skinned to be white and so I was kind of in this space between where I never really felt as though I fit in wholly with anybody. And, and, and so that left me in a place where, you know, ultimately looking back now, I'm thankful because I became a chameleon where I could literally blend and get along with all types of different groups, but I never had any real deep connections. And so as far as the racism side of it, you know, those things existed, but it wasn't like where we lived in Flagstaff, there's four Indian reservations that all combined right there on Flagstaff. You've got Hopi, Navajo, Apache, and Cherokee, and they all combined right there on Flagstaff. So brown wasn't, you know, brown was a, was a color everyone was used to. Let's just say that. So there wasn't a whole lot of outright racism, but there was always questions. You know, my mom would be questioned when we were really little. She was questioned on whether or not we were really her kids. Uh, When they were in the military and we were moving places, people would think that my mom was like trying to kidnap us when she was trying to get on planes with us, things like that. So she dealt with Mm. more of it than we really did um, growing up. But ultimately, that was the main thing is it was very hard to try to find deep, meaningful relationships because I just didn't feel like I fit in anywhere at that mm-hmm. point. So your ability to adapt uh, grew. You, I mean, it was just out of survival mode. Uh, now, what do you think it did as far as not being able to go deep with others? How did that, you think that affected you as a teenager? 
I think that's part of definitely what led to me getting into so much trouble. You know, I didn't have deep, meaningful relationships, but I was trying to feel things and trying to, you know, obviously you're going through like puberty and you're going through all of these different things. And so to top it off, I just didn't feel like I belonged. And so I created, I tried to win people over or win relationships or try to be cool or try to get everybody to like me by doing you know, dangerous things, hanging out in pool halls until three in the morning when I was 13 years old or, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, just things like that. I never got into alcohol or drugs at that period of my life. Cause my dad was still there in the background and he scared me to death. And mm-hmm. so luckily I never really got into drugs or alcohol at that point, but I did get, you know, mm-hmm. we were lower middle class. So I did get into a lot of trouble with, like stealing and I was always trying to find, you know, money so that I could buy the nice shoes so that I could buy the nice clothes so that I could look like something more than what I was in hopes to develop friendships, you know? Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. So how did you, what happened when you get to the end of high school? Now what? Are you still stuck in this life or are you starting to mature? What happened? So when I get to the end of high school, it was kind of cool. I changed high schools uh, after my sophomore year. So my sophomore year, that summer, I was getting a lot of trouble, hanging out with different, you know, gangs, if you want to call them that, so on and so forth. Uh, Lots lots of trouble, and I, I ended up changing schools to chase a girl. I had fallen in love with a young lady. And so I changed high schools to a new high school, which... This new high school was in the richer area of Flagstaff, Arizona. It was called Sanawa High School, and it was a new high school, and it was primarily all uh, all all white. It was an all white school in the rich neighborhood of Flagstaff, Arizona. And so when I went over there, it was neat because I was one of the only people of color, which gave me a lot of that attention that I was seeking. And it was good. It was good attention, you know. So mm. I ran track and I happened to be really, really good at at uh, triple jump and long jump and things like that. And so I became an, an athlete there and I had the, the girlfriend and all of those things. So the the late teenage years... I started to really embrace and enjoy being who I am and being mixed and starting to understand the gifts that came along with that, the gifts and the assets that I, you know, that I personally had and just really starting to embrace that, you know, going, uh, uh, so I came out of high school feeling much more confident than, than I did going in for sure. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Glenn. So after that, Glenn, what happened? Where, where did it life lead you after high school? <laughs> so, yeah. So I got out of high school. I went to college. I got a full ride scholarship to Northern Arizona University on academics and went now, there. Your, your scholarship was based on what? On track? No, my scholarship was full ride academics. Wow. Yeah, I scored a 31 on my ACT. And so... I got accepted to pretty much every college in the United States, but only two of them gave me full-ride scholarships. NAU was one, and it was right there in my backyard, and my girlfriend was going to go there. So, well, Of course. I don't know why <laughs> All the things that are important, that. right? Now, did you end up marrying this girl? I did not. No, 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 no. Let me, let me, let, so college was um, – so I hit college, and I did the stereotypical let's go wild, right? Let's go, let's go wild in college. I've got my own dorm. I'm out of the house. I've got my freedoms. And so uh, me and, and the high school girlfriend end up splitting up in r- rather a short amount of time. And I'm chasing girls. And now I'm doing the things like the drinking and, the, uh, you know, different things like that. And so I'm rapidly headed down this party road. And then I meet this young lady who lived right down below me. And her and I hit it off. And we started hanging out like a lot for about two months. And we realized this is getting serious. And this is getting serious fast. And we're fresh kids in college and we're young. We don't really want to do this. And so we broke up. And later that day, she came back. To, I was working at a car wash at that point. And later that day, she came back to let me know that she was pregnant 
with my first of now seven children. And uh, so here I was, 19 years old, in college, girl I barely knew. We had literally just broke up. Find out I'm having a kid. And so that was the end of my... How much trauma did that uh, information cause for you (laughs) or in her? Man, it was... um, you know, she had she had mapped out this whole plan. She was a really good girl, and she had mapped out this whole whole plan. And then here was this kid, kind of throwing a monkey wrench and everything. So she went into a depression, and I mean, it was it was really really rough for her. For me, I was I just kind of made a shift to like, okay, I've got to do what a man is supposed to do, which is pro- be a provider, raise the child. And sacrifice everything else and that was I didn't want to do that but I kind of felt like that was the right thing Mm -hmm. to do and I wish I could say it was really like what I wanted to do like oh yeah I want to be a great father but I I think it goes back to my childhood where I wanted to do the thing that society says that I should do so that I could fit in Mm. well not everybody does what sure. you did. So what do you think was driving your commitment to that mindset? I mean, you didn't have to marry her, uh, these kinds of things. So what sort of contributed to your course of action? Well, I, I, I didn't marry, I didn't marry her. So, so her and I stayed together, had, had the, had the child. I dropped out of college and I started working in, in sales and in the auto industry because I, I, I had to get a big boy job at this point. And so, yes, I was doing the right thing as far as I was going to raise my child. However, I still didn't necessarily have the right mindset because the mother or the child weren't really a priority. I was just doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. so I, I started this career in the car business and... I really dove into that career. I was really, really good at it. Uh, I My career took off right out the gate. And so I immediately put my career in front of my child, in front of her mother. And after a period of about two years, uh, she left me for another gentleman. So we split up. And then we did the shared custody thing for about four years and then she ultimately went to court and took my my daughter away from me. She took full custody of my daughter when she was six years old. I lost custody of her, and it was 100% my fault because I just wasn't making her a priority, and her mom could see that. Um, and so I lost custody of her, and that's where my life kind of took a crazy spin at that point because as soon as I lost custody... I quit my job in the auto industry. I packed up my Ford Mustang with whatever would fit in it, and I and I hit the road trying to find a new place where I wasn't going to walk around the corner and see my daughter's mother or my daughter and not be able to have contact with them. Mm. So where did it take you? Where did that Mustang take you? That Mustang, Ken, I got to tell you, I was brilliant back then. I had this brilliant idea that I was going to go play poker for a living and that that was going to work out really, really well for me, hanging out in casinos from uh, 10 in the morning till 10 at night every day. And so I jumped in a Ford Mustang. I drove to Las Vegas. I started playing poker. I mean, I had already been playing poker, but I I started living out this dream of being a professional poker player. And uh, after about two weeks, I was sitting in the parking garage in that Ford Mustang with no money, no gas, and nowhere to go, <laughs> wondering what the heck am I going to do with my life at this point. So my, my, my big visions of this Daniel Negrano-style poker life were quickly squandered. Mm. So then what did you do? Here you're in the parking lot. Uh, no resources. What happened? So at that point, I made I made a call to somebody I'd known from automotive that lived in California, and uh, she was kind enough to let me to come stay with her for a short period of time. And while I was out there, I continued to have this very through this whole through all of this, I had this very 
Um, one, I had a victim mentality where everything was everybody else's fault. And two, I had no uh, spiritual understanding of self or anything bigger. And so all of my actions were very self-serving. So when I went to California, I stayed with her for a while, but she was able to see through me fairly quickly. And that ultimately led to, you know, another bridge being burned and another bridge being burned and another bridge being burned until after I had been in California about 18 months when I, when I looked around and realized I had no friends, I had nowhere to go. Um, I had burned every bridge. I had no credit. I had no money. And here I was homeless on the streets of San Diego, California with, uh, with no real way out. Now, when you think about that, Glenn, what was it about your character or lack thereof that was burning all these bridges? Who were you then that was so divisive towards other people, even those that were reaching out trying to help you? Yeah, I was just very, I was very survival of the fittest with no real morals or integrity. I had the gift of salesmanship and I had the gift of, of words. I could use words really effectively. And I had this energy where people would follow me. I was, I've always been a leader of sorts. And so people would follow me. People were drawn to me. People were attracted to me. And then once they got in, I would then use that relationship to see what I could extract out of it in a very survival of the fittest type situation. So as long as you were serving me, we were good. If I didn't have enough, the person closest to me was the person who got hurt, if that made sense. So um, uh, if saying self-centered was probably a mild description of that. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. It was very... I would. I always had the best intentions, but my actions in moments of desperation that I felt were desperation. In moments of desperation, it was, it was all about me. It was like, you know, it was it was me or you, and in all those cases, it was going to be me. <laughs> so, in, in the course, Glenn, life has changed for you now, and and I I want to stay with the story because I didn't really anticipate it as the host. But I love it. And uh, one of the things that we do here at Secrets of Success is that people's journeys and stories, uh, in my opinion, are the most engaging. So let's just, I just want to do one question before we go back to this San Diego point in the story. What do you think drove, your, drove you to have these kinds of core values in this life? Not everybody is that sort of self-absorbed. Where, sure. where do you think that came from? Was that like a survival mode when you were growing up when, when your parents split? Or where do you think that came from? You seem to be nice now. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 thanks. Um, I, I can't really say where it came from. I just know that there were, there were a few components missing. So I was, I've, I've always been intelligent, and I like to do research, and I like to... to to study, and so I can quickly go down rabbit holes. And back then, I very much studied, you know, things like um, you know, theory of evolution and uh, you know, Darwinism and art of war and things like that. I was just enamored with, I was enamored with success, and I was enamored with with an understanding of like how people's minds work and things like that. I was just, I was enamored with all of that, but regretfully I just had no moral compass mm. like at all. There was, there was, there was no moral compass. And I don't think that's my mom's fault or my dad's fault because they were both incredible people. They weren't, you know, we didn't grow up in church or any, anything like that. But my mom was always, you know, straight and narrow, super kind. My dad, other than the way that he treated us and and my mom, outwardly he was a very, very, very kind and and loved um, human being. So, I think just as I was trying to figure out where do I fit, how do I fit in this whole scheme of things, 
I just kind of ended up taking a path that led me to really want to win at no matter what the cost. Mm-hmm. Much appreciated. Thanks for that. So yeah. here you are, San Diego. Uh, did you still have the Mustang or was it gone and you were homeless? Yeah, the Mustang's gone. I'm 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 homeless, walking up and down the streets, and uh, every day be every day was the same. I'd wake up at about six a.m. and when the bus. So let me back up. In San Diego, they have buses that run twenty four seven. So I would run the ride the bus at night, and then at six a.m. it would pull into the the bus depot, and I would have to hop off, and then I would spend that time from six a.m. until basically just looking for change, right? I, I would look for change because I wanted a sausage McMuffin with egg. That was what I wanted. If I could get a sausage McMuffin with egg, I'd be able to last the day. And so I'd spend the day looking for change. And then once I got enough, I'd get my sausage, egg, egg and cheese McMuffin. And then from there, I would spend the rest of the day looking for enough change to be able to get back on the bus, Right. And and that was my day, day in, day out. Look for the change, get a sausage egg McMuffin, uh, look for more change, get on the bus. And I do that in circles. And after a period of time, you start to really lose, it's almost like Groundhog Day. You just completely lose any hope that tomorrow's going to be any mm-hmm. different or any better, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was, that in itself was tough just kind of living each day, day to day. But the worst part about it was over time, you start to become invisible. And so when you're homeless, people kind of look through you. They're maybe afraid you're going to mug them or you're going to bug them and ask them for money or whatever. And so here I was in San Diego, California. I'm surrounded by wealth. There's people holding hands, running down the beach. There's all these things going on and I'm invisible. Like, no one would make eye contact with me. And that was the point. Once I realized, like, okay, I'm doing the same thing. I have no hope of tomorrow being any different. I'm literally invisible. People can't even see me. That sent me into a really, really deep, dark, scary place uh, that led to me uh, attempting to, to kill myself. Mm. And then uh, what happened after that with somebody who has had those similar thoughts when I was 19, I can relate to that situation, is so uh, how did you get out? Who helped you out? So I I tried. I'm not a very good swimmer. And so I figured what's the easiest way out of this thing? And I was like, well, I'll just swim out as far as I can, you know, out into the ocean. I won't be able to swim back. And so I waited until the beach just kind of cleared in the evening one night, and I uh, I swam out as, as basically as far as I could, and you know the waves are smashing up against my face, all the all of those different things, and as I reached the point where I thought, okay, this is my last breath, this this is it, it's all over. As I reached that point, my head went under, and my feet hit the ground again. And so I popped up. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Well, it turned out the tide had been coming in, and I'm trying to swim out, and I'm not a good enough swimmer. I can't even get out past the tide. So the ocean literally pushes me back up on shore, and that was when I remember laying there looking up at the stars and just seeing so many stars, this abundance of stars, this huge, massive universe. And I just had this sense like, oh, wait a minute, my problem's really are small in comparison to the opportunities that are out there. And there's got to be more to this life than just flesh and bone. And really, Glenn, if you look at this situation, the constant in every bad thing that's happened in your life has been you. So if you're the constant in all of the bads, can't you maybe be the constants in all of the goods? And so that little mind shift after I failed, that little mind shift sent me on a new journey where now I started to do studies and research spirituality and getting to know the, uh, you know, the, 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 the side of myself outside of the physical 
Um, and it just sent me down a, down a completely different path. Now, don't get me wrong. I still made a million mistakes between now, you know, and that moment right there, but that was really where my moral compass and just my overall life compass shifted and started to point in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that, Glenn. Now, how did you get out and started your first employment or job back after being homeless? Yeah, so... Yeah, so once I started down a, a kind of a different path, of course, you know, people came into my life and, and, and different aspects, different hands up, um, different people helping me in, in different ways. Some were strangers, some were old friends, and I migrated kind of out of the San Diego area up into the Tustin, California area, and then back over to Phoenix, Arizona, and then ultimately hopped on a plane one day and landed in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, which was amazing. So to, the way I found Lexington was interesting, Ken. So I was in, the, I was looking in the papers and, and I found a, a, you know, a classified and the job listing was like, basically they needed someone who could travel all the time that had no ties to anywhere and could be gone for months, months on end. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> I could, I don't have any ties and I could be gone for months on end. So I got this job. It was with a company called 2020 companies and they immediately started shipping me all over the United States to open sales offices for their, um, they were just starting to add fiber optic lines and things like that. And they wanted to let people know about it. So here I am now I'm traveling state to state living in hotels. Uh, I think I was on the road for about nine months straight when I came across, they sent me to Lexington, Kentucky. And while I was in Lexington, Kentucky, is the craziest thing. I'm looking around, and as a car person, you always look at license plate frames. You mm. look at license plate frames because you want to see who the who the best dealer is in town, that kind of thing. And I kept looking, and all of the license plate frames said uh, Glenn, like they were Glenn because there's a big auto mall called Glenn Auto Mall. So it was like Glenn Nissan, Glenn Chevrolet, Glenn Buick, all these different Glens. And then everywhere I would look, the largest catering company in Lexington is Lundy's Catering. And they had these big Lundy's catering trucks everywhere. So it'd be like, Glenn Lundy, Glenn Lundy, Glenn Lundy, all over the place. And I thought, maybe this is a sign that that's where I'm supposed to be. And so I met a guy while I was out here, a guy named Aaron Jones. And uh, he called me a few months later, said that he needed a roommate, wanted to know what I was doing with my life. And I said, really, man, I'm still not doing much. And so I hopped on a plane with $1,500 cash and a suitcase and my, made my way to the bluegrass state. Mm. And so did you start selling cars or what were you doing there? Uh, right out the gate, I actually got a job as a night auditor. I was trying to avoid the car business this whole time because I blamed the car business for my relationship. And, and um, the car business itself is pretty well known for not being very conducive to to strong relationships or life outside of work, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to jump back in. Uh, I had some visions of, I knew I loved gambling and I loved poker and I loved people and I loved all these things, but some of them weren't healthy for me. And so I started to figure out like, how could I incorporate poker, bring people together, but not have it be illegal and have no risk of me losing money. And I created something called Kentucky Blue Poker Crew, where I went to bars and restaurants and I would run poker games twice a night, uh, kind of like think like karaoke or live trivia or any of these other things that bars do. So they would pay me per head to bring people in and we would play free poker all night long and the people would eat and drink while they were there. And we had a point system and so on and so forth. And, and so I started that and I was able to grow that to the largest free poker league in the state uh, within a matter of about six to eight months. We had about 15,000 members that were, were playing in that. So I did that for a little while. And then I met a girl at a bar named Leslie. She was the bartender and her and I hit it off. And about two months later, right after we decided that we weren't going to be together, we found out that she was pregnant. <laughs> and here, Glenn, Glenn, I've heard this story before. 
<laughs> exactly, a, Ken. What's a beep, beep, beep going on there? Okay. <laughs> exactly. So now here I was in the same situation with a, a woman I barely knew, and here we were having a kid. And that's when I said, okay, all right, I am not about to go through this entire journey that I just went through all over again. So let's do this the right way this time. And so her and I stayed together and um, we had, you know, Savannah at the time. And I did go back to the car business because it was all I knew. But I went back with a new mindset that I am not going to allow the car business to tear apart my life or my relationships. Instead, I'm going to go in and make an impact in the car business and that's what I did. I went in and, and started doing things opposite of how, um, you know, doing things opposite of, of how it went for me in the car business before. And in doing so, was able to take a really small store in a very small town of only 9,600 people. And we were able to grow it 800%, making it the second largest used car franchise dealership in the country. And meanwhile, my wife and I got married and her and I have had six kids together since then been together about a decade now and mm. uh and yeah so took all the lessons from the 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 rough journey and kind of did the opposite and it's worked out much better this time <laughs> cool now what would what did you do uh, and if you can believe it we only have about 10 minutes left and i oh, want wow. and we haven't even talked about your um your book and your rise and grind planner and all that stuff so we'll get to that but what did you what did you do to grow a store and just so you know i had 10 years as a consultant to the auto industry and we were the sole supplier to chrysler for their training for a decade so uh, i get the industry what did you do to grow the store 800% well, there was a couple a couple things right out the gate. We had to shift. You know, I, I literally wrote like a list of all the things that I hated about the car business as a employee and all of the things that I assumed that customers or had heard over the years that customers hated about the car business and said, okay, we're going to do the exact opposite of all of these things. So one of those things, and I think a lot of businesses get this wrong, is a lot of businesses will say the customer is always right, and they try to build a business for their customers. I wanted to build a business for my employees, who then would ultimately bleed over and take care of my customers. So it was really a focus on my staff who do i have employed how am i training them what am i teaching them how am i serving them how can i ultimately extract greatness out of each of these individuals are our pay plans in line where they can win and they can thrive like really focusing on our employees and that in turn helped me create an army i mean literally an army of, of employees that were going above and beyond in all situations, which trickles down to, to, to results. You know, when now, you if have I may interrupt, Glenn, sure. where did you get the authority in a new dealership to make these kinds of significant changes so early on? So I started, uh, I started in sales when I first went in. I went in, I met the owner, and I said, hi, my name's Glenn Lundy. I've been a general manager, a general sales manager, a finance manager, a salesperson. I'm the greatest thing that's ever happened to you in your life, and you should hire me and make me a manager. And he looked me right in the face and was like, sorry, sir, we're not interested. I'm not looking to hire any managers right now, but you're welcome to sell cars if you would like. And so it was nice because he humbled me right out the gate. Mm -hmm. put me back to to the to the to the base. So once I went on the floor, I was like, okay, I can sell cars, get to know their system and show them and earn their respect along the way, not just the people on the floor, but other people in management and the owners themselves. And so that was my intention was let's work my way through the ranks and build respect along the way so that when I do get into that position, I already have, it's not just a title, but I already have the, the respect of my team. And so I sold for about six months, and then they promoted me to a, 
to a sales manager and I did that for a year or so. And then from there I went to a GSM and then from there ultimately to a GM and all along the way, just bringing more and more people uh, hired. You know, I was in charge of all the hiring as soon as I became a sales manager. So just bringing the right people in, implementing the training, doing things, and of course making some mistakes, you know, along the way. But I just was a, I was a student, Ken. I was I was a student. I was absorbing. I was learning. I was into self development. I was understanding my spiritual side more. I was using these gifts that I had once used mm-hmm. for evil. I was now using them to 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 really serve others. And man, what a what a difference it made. Mm, cool, cool. So, Glenn, what are you doing with yourself now? I mean, we've got glennlundy.com. We've got this. Uh, rise and grind program so what is it that you are do- are you still in the car business or what is, what is it you're doing now yeah i am um after we grew this store we we broke a thousand cars one month and you know we did all the, all those kinds of things i started to feel like god was calling me to take what i had done and what 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 we had done at that dealership and to take that and be able to help and serve more people outside of just those four walls. And so uh, the owner and I, who are still best friends, we, we I told him I was going to leave and, and kind of pursue some other things. And, and that's what I'm doing now. So I am working with dealerships all over the country. I work with owners and general managers of those dealerships. Um, I work with them on implementing a, and developing a better culture, extracting greatness out of their people. And so I do that, and then I also have what you mentioned, which is Rise and Grind. And Rise and Grind was something that started a little over two years ago where I wanted to go live on a consistent basis ultimately to give somebody like me from 15 years ago something to look forward to tomorrow and a place where they would be seen. So on my show, I go live 5.30 a.m. Monday through Friday, and on every show, there's a segment where I say, let's dance, and I say good morning to all of the people that are in the feed. I say good morning to, to as many as I can. And then I always go back after the show and I respond to people's comments. I can't respond to them all because there's about 900 comments per episode. But I try to respond to each individual person. They may comment more than once, but I try to respond to them all. And the motivating factor behind that is I just remember how bad it felt to be invisible. I remember that. And I don't want anyone else to ever feel that way. I want people to know that they're, they're never alone, ever. Even though you might feel alone, you're never alone. There are people that love you. There's... There's, there, there's sides to this. There's things outside of our physical being. And, mm-hmm. and so I want people to know that they are loved. And, and so I created this show for that. Uh, and I had no idea that it was going to blow up to, to what it is now. So now that show has become a clothing line. And we have a group with over 30,000 members. And I've traveled all over and spoke on stages and, and connected with amazing humans like yourself. And it's just been... It's been crazy, man. So I still serve the auto industry, work with the leaders, and then I also try to reach out and connect with as many people as I can just to let them know, hey, if tonight you're feeling and you're in that deep, dark space and you're maybe thinking of killing yourself or you just feel like you're alone, all you got to do is hang on till 5.30 a.m. I promise I'll be there. I'll say your name. We can connect. Just just hang on. It gets better. Mm-hmm. Now, we're already down to the last three or four minutes and Glenn, I'd like to go on longer, but those people that have been listening, you know, we want to respect their drive. And of course they can find out more at uh, glennlundy.com. But you talk about something um, to your listeners about your, your morning really should have some rituals that help you to get started in the right way. Quickly, what are a couple of those things that uh, you teach people so that they can really launch their day in a positive way? Yeah, I believe that um, I believe, and I and, and I try to train people on f- around four key words. So my core, kind of my core value words, they rise, evolve, impact together. 
So I believe every day we should rise with intention and purpose so that we can evolve into the absolute best versions of ourselves that we can possibly be so that we can ultimately go out and make an impact in other people's lives. And the great news is we can do this together, right? We don't have to do it alone. So I use those four words, and within that I created a five-step system for the morning. So I call it the morning five, five simple steps to an extraordinary life. And that's something that you can download for free. I wrote a little ebook. You can download it for free at themorning5.com. But it's just five simple steps. Step one, never hit the snooze button. Step two, don't jump on your phone first thing in the morning. Step three, this sounds like two steps, but it's really one, a gratitude list followed by your goals. And the reason we roll that into one step is I know people say, hey, you need to write your goals down. You need to write your goals down. You've heard that a million times. Mm -hmm. But if you're only writing your goals from a place of lack, it's like I want more. I want this. I want this. It can actually Mm -hmm. be detrimental to your health. We need to write our goals from a place of gratitude. I'm thankful for what I have, and yet I aspire for more. So that's step three. Step four is take care of yourself physically, whether that be walking, running, just get your body in motion. And then step five, I believe, is the most powerful and important step of the whole thing. And that's send out an encouraging message. So we've spent the whole morning taking care of ourselves, mind, body, and spirit. We've been selfish in a good way first thing in the morning. Now we have a responsibility to take that energy that we've built up release it out into the world, make an impact in somebody else's life, whether it just be a text message or a message on Facebook or anything, just release that positive out and watch what happens. It's incredible, Ken. Absolutely Mm. incredible. Mm. So those are the five steps that I believe are the most important for a a good, strong morning routine. Thanks, Glenn. Well, man, we've already run out of time. That's... uh... Well, there we go. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, that does mean that there's been engaged and been great stories. So, again, Glenn, how can they find out about you? They can go to glennlundy.com, and that'll connect them to all my stuff, all my Facebooks and Instagrams and all that good stuff. And 30,000 in your groups, so you're rocking it. And we'll make sure that that's in the show notes. Uh, But Glenn, uh, thank you very much for sharing your story and probably going into some parts of your story you haven't done before. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's been it's been interesting, and thank you for helping extract some of that stuff from my childhood. I've never really looked at some aspects of that um, and how they've impacted me today. You're welcome. Well, uh, stay with us, uh, Glenn. But uh, thanks again for being on the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know Glenn's story is amazing, isn't it? To go from success to homeless to success, and that making a choice is what it's about. The other thing that Glenn and I agree on 100% is that every single person listening to this, you matter, you're important, you are significant, you have a contribution to make. And we talk about that pretty well every show. And so if you're thinking about that you're not, well then uh, we wanna encourage you that you would just reach out to one of us and find something encouraging in one of the things that we have here. So thank you as always for being a Secrets of Success listener. If you like what we're doing, pass it on, leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're uh, listening on. We very much appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.